Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. And today we celebrate All Saints Day. And we always begin with the Angelus. So do you have an intention for our Angelus? Kyle, thinking about today, Feast of All Saints and the universal call to holiness, just a very simple intention. Offer this that the Lord will make us holy, that he'll make us saints. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, talks about Halloween, All Saints Day, All Souls Day, and the upcoming Feast of St. Charles Borromeo, the patron saint of bishops. Then, as Respect Life Month is wrapping up, it's a focus on right-to-life issues including ways we can peacefully and prayerfully show the church's consistent ethic of life through events like the 40 Days for Life campaign and this January's March for Life in Washington, D.C. Plus, Bishop Rhodes discusses the numerous organizations in Northeast Indiana that encourage and support women facing crisis pregnancies, like the Women's Care Centers and the Christ Child Society. Afterwards, the Respect Life theme continues in listener-submitted questions. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and today we celebrate the Feast of All Saints. Can you explain what that means? Uh, I love today's solemnity, Kyle. It's, uh, it's a day when we... Um, Remember all the saints in heaven, not just those who are canonized, but everyone, all the friends of, of God, all the, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are already with God in the glory of heaven. So we're inspired by their example, and we know that they pray for us, and we ask them to intercede for us. It's really beautiful to contemplate today our destiny is All Saints Day, is that the same thing as Dia de los Muertes? Muertos? No, Dia de los Muertos is All Souls Day. 
November 2nd. Okay. I love these days. I have to tell you, Kyle, they're one of my favorite times of the liturgical year. October 31st is Halloween and, you know, the Eve of All Saints. Uh Uh-huh. Then All Saints Day, a glorious feast. And then the next day, we remember the souls in purgatory and all the faithful departed. So it's kind of like the whole church. Here we are, the church on earth. We're still pilgrims on our way. Those who've reached their eternal destiny, the saints who are in God's presence and enjoy the beatific vision, and the suffering church, those still being purified in purgatory. And that's the church, you know, it's not just us here on earth. So I think it's beautiful to think of the whole body of Christ during these few days. Can you explain briefly the concept of purgatory? Sure. I mean, we could have a whole uh, (laughs) show on purgatory. It has to do with purification. All the souls that go to purgatory, which I would imagine would be the majority of us, still have to be purified before we come into God's presence because of the effects of sin Mm -hmm. and also what we call the temporal punishment due to sin. So there's this purifying fire of God's love. That's basically what purgatory is. I mean, it's a mystery because it's beyond our comprehension, but there's some beautiful things written about purgatory and, and certainly about heaven and how we can assist each other. That's why it's a really good, pious practice to pray for the souls in purgatory, to offer suffrages for them, sacrifices. Do you feel like that's a practice that's kind of been lost lately? Yeah, I think it's making something of a comeback. I mean, as I go around to parishes, I'll hear more often now than I did some years ago, prayers being offered, for example, in the general intercessions for the souls in purgatory. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something of a comeback. I think it's an, you know, one of the the beautiful um, encyclicals of Pope Benedict was called Spe Salvi, forget the English translation, I think it's in hope we are saved. And he has a a beautiful section on purgatory I recommend people read. There's also some very good theological pieces about the reality of purgatory. It makes so much sense to me. Of course, even here on earth, through our works of penance and that, we can experience already purification on earth. But if we haven't been totally purified, that process continues in the state that we call purgatory. Do you have any suggestions on ways that we can uh, incorporate more prayers for the souls in purgatory into our daily routine? And I know another expression people often use is to offer your sufferings up for those in purgatory. I think that's a great way. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, for example, if someone's sick, one of the intentions one can offer those uh, one's pain for, for the souls in purgatory. I also think even an explicit intention, for example, when we're praying the rosary. You know, when I pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, oftentimes when I get to the fifth sorrowful mystery, the crucifixion and death of our Lord, I'll often offer that decade for the poor souls in purgatory, mm-hmm. the holy souls we call them. I encourage people to go to Mass on All Souls Day. I know it's not a holy day of obligation, but, I mean, November 1st is. I mean, yes. we're, we're obligated to go to Mass on All Saints Day. But even though we're not obligated to go on All Souls Day, I think 
You know, that used to be a big day where everyone went to church, even though they weren't obliged. Hmm. I'd love to see a comeback in that. You know, on November 2nd, I'll be celebrating Mass at Catholic Cemetery. I do that most years mm-hmm. in uh, in Fort Wayne. That's our diocesan cemetery, and I have Mass, and, you know, I invite people to come to that. Okay. It's a day where we remember our beloved dead. We remember the faithful departed, and we pray for them. That's just something I want to recommend is... is uh, Maybe trying to get to Mass on that day to show our love for our deceased loved ones, family members, and friends. Last time we had a question about indulgences. Is it possible to offer an indulgence that we get for souls in purgatory? Yes, yes. We can offer indulgences that we attain either for someone who's deceased or the souls in purgatory or for ourselves. We can't offer it for another living person though okay all right another thing that you mentioned was that halloween it comes from all hallows eve what are your thoughts on what's become a secular version of halloween that's a that's a controversial question kyle i (laughs) I know catholics who are just adamantly opposed to halloween Uh others not at all i remember as a child you know we celebrated halloween we went trick-or-treating and all that do you remember any of your costumes? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know what? I think I was Batman one year. Uh, I remember that. I, I can't remember others. I Oh, I was a ghost. Uh-huh. Um, but I'd have to think more about that. My memory's not great. I think when I was Batman, I was like out there kind of beating up some people, you know, and stuff like that. No. <laughs> No, the uh, I think Halloween, it can be harmless. Obviously, you have to be careful that it doesn't, you know, some who make of Halloween some kind of celebration of the demonic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to avoid anything like that, any kind of satanic elements, because I think there are satanic groups who would probably observe Halloween in a very objectionable way. Sure. Um, Obviously, we we don't do that. We would be revolted by that, actually. Mm-hmm. Any suggestions on ways that we should be celebrating Halloween? A little late now for this year, but for for years to come. Well, you know, one thing I think to remember it's it's All Hallows Eve. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, those of us who pray the Liturgy of the Hours on the evening of Halloween, we're praying evening prayer of the vigil of all saints. So our eyes are already on the evening of Halloween. We're starting the observance of All Saints Day. One thing I really like is when kids dress up as saints Uh on Halloween. That's a neat thing. Yeah. Saint Batman. (laughs) (laughs) You also have a feast day coming up. St. Charles Borromeo is the patron saint of bishops, and his feast day is on November 4th, the Saturday. Uh, what do we know about St. Charles? I thought you were saying that because my middle name is Carl. Oh, is that, did that come from the same? Yeah, oh. it's St. Charles, yeah. Carl yeah. would go back to Charles. And make that connection. Yeah, Carlos, you know, Carlo, Charles, Carl, it's all the same so root. So, it's, it's doubly your feast That's day. That's right. Your yeah. name feast day and your bishop Yeah, and I, I attended St. Charles Seminary in Philadelphia for two years. Okay. And we always had a, a great uh, 
celebration on his feast day. What a model for bishops. I mean, he was a bishop at the time of the Council of Trent, and he um, implemented the reforms in the Archdiocese of Milan, where he was the archbishop. Uh, he's a model bishop. I mean, um, his motto was humilitas, humility. He was a real humble bishop. Hmm. He had so much. I mean, he, for example, the Council of Trent mandated the establishment of seminaries because before that, it was kind of hit and miss the way men were prepared for the priesthood. So there was a need for better formation of priests. Sure. So Charles Borromeo was a pioneer in that, in establishing the seminary in Milan. And he was a great reforming bishop, areas where the church needed reform. He, he, they needed a holier clergy, and that was a big priority for him. He was a great preacher. So he's a very good model for, for uh, bishops, and also, I think, on the Feast of St. Charles, also of the formation of future priests and how important that is. You've made a few changes with the formation of the seminarians. Uh, is there anything that you kind of predict for the future of things that you'd like to Templeman, you talk about the importance of the formation of priests or or maybe formation for current priests? Well, for our seminarians, one of the changes I made in the diocese, I imagine most people don't know this, but I require our seminarians to, uh, in the summer before they begin theology, that they go to the Institute for Priestly Formation in Omaha, Nebraska. They have a 10-week program that's completely focused on prayer, hmm. on their spiritual life. And I thought that was important because obviously spiritual formation is an important component during their, their time in the seminary. But I like this where it becomes the exclusive focus yeah. during the 10 weeks that they're in Omaha. So that's one change. I also send some seminarians to Guatemala mm -hmm. in the summer so that they learn Spanish and, and uh, more about Latino culture because there's a great need in our diocese with 14 communities that have Spanish-speaking ministry. Mm -hmm. And I'm very happy with the formation that our seminarians are getting in the two se three seminaries that we send to. First, those who are college-age seminarians go to Bishop Simon Brute Seminary in Indianapolis and mm -hmm. take their classes at Marion University. We have probably, I think, 25, 24 or 25 seminarians at Mount St. Mary's, where I send them for both pre-theology and theology. Uh -huh. And the third seminary is the North American College in Rome, where occasionally I will send a seminary. And we have one there now, Spencer St. Louis. The ongoing formation of priests is also essential. I mean, formation doesn't end with ordination. So we have various things in the diocese for the ongoing formation of our priests. We have annual workshop, which would have different themes. We have an annual retreat. We have a couple days of recollection and a couple presbyterate days. Occasionally, a priest can apply for and go on sabbatical, where that becomes an ongoing education experience for them. What is the reason for sending a seminarian to Rome? I think the, the number one thing is, besides the excellent academic training at one of the Roman ecclesiastical universities, I think it's the experience of the universal church, mm. the experience of the Pope, and also 
uh, just studying with seminarians from all over the world. Yeah. I mean, that was a very, very good experience in my life. All right. Well, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the respect life issues that we talk about here in the church, and then we'll eventually take some questions submitted by listeners. All that coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and November 5th is the last day for the 40 Days for Life campaign that's been going on across the country, maybe across the world. And people have been praying outside of the Planned Parenthoods, both in Fort Wayne and Mishawaka. Have you been involved with the 40 Days for Life in the past? I have been a few times. Um, you know, I've been involved in praying the rosary, especially outside abortion clinics, actually, and Planned Parenthood, really since my early years as a priest. And um, the 40 Days for Life campaign wasn't in existence during my first years as a priest, but mm -hmm. now it's, it's a more organized effort. So I really support it, and I'm grateful for all of our people who take the time, because prayer is at the center of this battle. We can't underestimate the value of prayer. I think it was St. John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae where he said a great campaign of prayer is needed hmm. for building a culture of life. Have you prayed outside of abortion clinics or? Yeah, many times, many times. What has your experience been doing that? It's been good. I think, um, I mean, there are times where, you know, I've been received verbal insults and things mm -hmm. like that. That's not very pleasant. Yeah. But the important thing is it's not only a public witness, but I also think it can, through the grace of God, at times change the hearts of those who are entering the abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. There are a couple different approaches of a very quiet uh, or peaceful prayer presence. Uh, some people are more vocal uh, with uh, graphic signs. Do you have a, a thought on these different strategies? I think it always should be a loving approach. I think a quiet, prayerful presence is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think when there is what they call sidewalk counseling, it should never be in a antagonistic or attacking or condemning way. It always should be with love and compassion that one offers a person alternatives to abortion when one is doing the sidewalk counseling. You've been involved with the March for Life for a long time. I don't know if you remember this, but I was giving the announcements at the Mass at the Armory one year, and you were celebrating, and you gave me a little wave. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> that, yeah. But uh, what? Can you, maybe let's, let's start with explaining what the March for Life is for people that aren't familiar well, with it. Well, that's done on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, so ever since 1973, pro-life People have gathered in Washington in a peaceful protest and march. There's a rally, and the rally is followed by a march to the Supreme Court building. The rally has begun at different places, sometimes on the ellipse near the White House or the Washington Monument or wherever the, the police allow us to begin. And there's hundreds of thousands of people who come. It's always very underreported by mm -hmm. the media, but it's really a... Uh, 
an inspiring thing because and and the great majority of participants are young people which gives me and others great hope for the future because of a new pro-life generation but it's important to mark that sad anniversary because since then so many millions of lives have been lost some people might argue that the money spent on transportation out there and hotels and things uh, could be better spent given to pro-life pregnancy centers or different things that are act- actually doing something to help women in need. Why do you think it's important for us to invest the time and energy and money to go to the Capitol and, and be a part of the March for Life? I think because we need that advocacy. We need that public demonstration because, you know, that's the seat of our government. I mean, that's where the Supreme Court made the Roe v. Wade decision. Mm -hmm. That's where our congressmen and women are. That's where the president is. So we want to influence our public officials and let them know of our grave concern for the, the culture of death in our country. And I'll just say from personal experience, going on these trips has been uh, very empowering and and really helped me be more confident in my pro-life stance. And uh, just seeing all the people there is is very encouraging as well. It is. What about some of the initiatives that are happening around here? Because I think it's a both and. We need to have a presence there, but also we do need to support the pro-life movement here in our diocese. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. It's essential. We are called to, to help women who are in unplanned pregnancies or who may be tempted for various reasons to, to have their children aborted. I mean, look at the women's care centers and their approach. I mean, we've seen such a decline in the number of abortions in our diocese. And I would attribute so much of that to our women's care centers. Women who are troubled by the news that they've become pregnant and maybe think of that abortion's their only option. Mm-hmm. And they go into a, a women's care center and, and experience the love and support of the counselors and learn that there are alternatives, that they can really choose life. So I, I just want to put out a, a call to support the Women's Care Centers because I think their approach is, is the most successful. Their love for the women and their love for the unborn children. Mm-hmm. And that's how we convert a culture is, is primarily through love. There are other organizations, too. There are parish pro-life groups. There are the diocesan pro-life office. We have other organizations. I think of the Christ Child Society in Fort Wayne and in South Bend, and all they do to help needy children Mm -hmm. and babies. We have also the post-abortion ministry project, Rachel, to help bring healing to women who are suffering because of a past abortion. So to be pro-life is to be pro-woman, and it's to be pro-family, it's, um, and it's to be pro-service to the poor. The USCCB has a Respect Life theme for October 2017 going to September 2018. Uh, their theme is Be Not Afraid. Why do you think that's significant or appropriate for Respect Life? 
Yeah, that theme this year really attracted my attention. Every year, the USCCB, basically the U.S. Bishops Committee on Pro-Life Activities, has a Respect Life program. And every year provides a whole lot of materials to all of our parishes for Respect Life Month, the month of October, but also to be used throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So there are prayers, there are educational materials, posters, pamphlets, excellent pamphlets that we can put out in our churches. And this year, the overall theme is be not afraid. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jesus, how many times in the gospel said, be not afraid. St. John Paul II, when he began his pontificate, that was his great call, be not afraid. So basically, it's, it's confidence in God. And I think that's so important in our pro-life work. As a matter of fact, the scripture quote that is accompanying that theme, be not afraid, is Matthew 28, 20, hmm. where Jesus says, behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So we need not be afraid. The Lord is with us. And that's really important in this area so that we don't fall into any kind of fear about living our pro-life teachings. Jesus is with us, and he promised us that he would be with us always. So we can't let fear hold us back or enslave us, hold us back, for example, from assisting a woman who is unexpectedly pregnant or the, the pregnant woman herself to help her overcome the fears of the future, the fear that may be motivating her to seek an abortion. Mm -hmm. How many people are afraid to take a stand for the protection of human life because they don't want to be criticized or they don't want to be rejected. We can't be cowards in this. I think about an elderly person. I meet elderly people who, who are afraid that they're going to be a burden. <laughs> so we need to go out to the elderly and assure them, no, you're failing health or whatever. No, you're not a burden. You know, you're a gift. So we shouldn't be living out of fear. When we embrace God's gift of life, whatever sufferings we might have to endure, whatever storms or trials we face, we're not alone. I mean, the Lord is with us. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So Kyle, it's, a, it's I think, a great theme for our Respect Life program this year. With this kind of being a voting season also, in November, how important should the abortion issue play a role in our voting? Yeah, I, I addressed this issue in a lot of speeches that I gave prior to the presidential election, right. where, you know, we talk about voting according to a well-formed conscience. Obviously, one of the basic principles of Catholic social teaching is respect for the life and dignity of the human person. And when we speak about respect for life, we're talking about from the moment of conception until natural death. So abortion is an important issue that should be taken account in one's choice of who to vote for. I think we should know and learn candidates' stances on abortion and other issues of life and human dignity. 
I mean, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, those efforts to legalize those continue in our country. I mean, we already see in certain states. And we have a what the church calls a consistent ethic of life. We're concerned for the well-being of the elderly, the poor, the immigrants. All of these issues touch on human life and dignity. And of course, life itself, when we talk about abortion, but others whose lives are in danger. I think one of the great things about our Catholic teaching is its consistency, mm-hmm. a consistent ethic of life. All right. Well, I'm going to give a few resources if you want to get a pen and paper ready. A few of the things that we mentioned, 40daysforlife.com is where you can find out. Again, that goes until Sunday, November 5th. Uh, if you're interested in going to the March for Life with the diocese, that is Friday, January 19th of 2018. And you can find information at fwsbym.com. That's Fort Wayne South Bend Youth Ministry. fwsbym.com has information about the March for Life. Uh, womenscarecenter.org for information about the Women's Care Center. And also you mentioned Project Rachel for anybody that has gone through an abortion and is looking for some support there hopeafterabortion.com is a great resource. So if you have any questions, you can ask it by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking questions that have been submitted by listeners, kind of sticking with this pro-life theme. We have a few of them on the topic of the life and abortion and things like that. Uh, Joe from Fort Wayne asks, when is abortion okay? If the pregnancy would or could kill the mother? That's a good question. I think it's important to know to, to state that direct abortion is always and everywhere wrong, Mm -hmm. never allowed. It's what we call an intrinsic evil, direct abortion. The only thing that would be permissible is what is called an indirect abortion. In those rare cases when there's another condition that is being treated, there's not a direct killing of the unborn child. For example, the most classic case is a diseased uterus, like cancer. It is licit when a woman has a diseased uterus, which is gravely dangerous, and the uterus needs to be removed. What happens is the operation has a twofold effect, and one is that removing the uterus is to save the life of the mother, mm-hmm. but the unintended effect is the death of the unborn child. So that is called an indirect abortion. It, we, we follow what the church calls the principle of double effect in mm-hmm. these difficult moral cases. And for listeners, they may want to consult the catechism on how we morally analyze situations according to the principle of double effect. It might be helpful if I just review it. First of all, has to do with the intention. Obviously, in the case that I just mentioned, the operating doctor's intention is to save the life of the mother. Now, he foresees, he or she foresees that the baby will die, but that's not the intention. Mm-hmm. 
The second condition, because all four conditions must be met, by the way. Okay. The second condition after the intention is the act of itself cannot be of its nature evil. The action itself can't be an evil. And what is the act that's being done here? It's ridding the woman of a diseased part of her body, which is jeopardizing her life. So the act itself isn't intrinsically evil. The third condition is that the evil effect can't be the cause of the good effect. In other words, the death of the unborn child doesn't cause the good effect of saving the life of the mother. And the fourth condition is there has to be a proportionally grave reason for allowing the death of the baby. And of course, that reason is it's safeguarding the mother's life. So obviously, these are not like real frequent kinds of cases. They're really tragic situations. Mm-hmm. And that's what we would call an indirect abortion. And um, so direct abortion is always wrong. Indirect abortion may be permissible. Okay. Lee from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton asked, the term brain dead seems a bit unclear on what it means exactly. What vital signs should we pay most attention to when someone is on life support and said to be brain dead? To say brain death, it refers to the medical judgment that a person is dead by using neurological criteria. Neurological criteria. So really what it's talking about when we say brain death It means the ceasing of all the neurological activity throughout the brain. That's brain death. So really, it's very appropriate to use neurological criteria to determine death. Now, this is a scientific question. I think where people get a little bit confused is the customary way that death is determined is after breathing stops and the heartbeat ceases. Mm -hmm. But now with technological advances in healthcare, you can still have circulation and respiration going on through mechanical means, even after brain function has ceased. Mm -hmm. So that's why some are questioning, oh, should we still use the criteria of brain death or the neurological criteria? Well, we believe as Catholics, I mean, Pope John Paul II wrote about this, that, yeah, it is legitimate to use neurological criteria for the determination of death. You look at certain key signs. The doctor would look at, for example, the person who's in a coma, unresponsive. There's no cerebral motor responses to pain. There's the absence of brainstem reflexes. All these things. um, But what Pope John Paul said and I think some popes before him, is that the church has no competence in determining death. It belongs to medical science. And this is what medical science is saying. Now, this is really important because the question comes up about organ transplants. Okay. Can I receive organs for transplant from those who are declared dead using neurological criteria? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. A faithful Catholic may receive organs from a donor who's declared dead by neurological criteria. And also, when we are become organ donors ourselves, a faithful Catholic can make provisions for the donation of his or her organs in the event of, of his or her death 
whether it's determined by the cardiopulmonary criteria or neurological criteria. You know, I think the reason this sometimes the use of neurological criteria is controversial is you have these cases where someone may have total loss of brain function, but their heart's still beating because they have a ventilator or whatever. Mm -hmm. That artificial support kind of gives the appearance that the person's still alive. But the medical evidence is showing that really the person isn't. Neurological criteria does make certain that life is over. And the church, as I said, accepts this definition of death. You know, what is the church Christian or Catholic understanding of death is, is what? It's the separation of the soul from the body. So we look to the medical community to determine the biological signs to indicate with moral certainty that death has occurred. And uh, a firm indicator that death has occurred is the ir irreversible loss of brain function. So really, neurological criteria are compatible with Catholic teaching. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that the use of brain death criteria doesn't cause the death of the patient. It only assesses whether that death has already occurred. Mm. Um, it's yeah. the same. It's analogous to the way that the cessation of a heartbeat and the cessation of respiration have traditionally been used to make that assessment. So I hope that's helpful. All right. Another question we had was, what should researchers do with frozen embryos? Wow, you're giving me a lot of these big bioethical questions <laughs> yeah. today, I'm Kyle, but they are important questions. And this I consider oh, a really sad and tragic situation yeah. because there are hundreds of thousands of human embryos that are frozen, cryopreserved in liquid nitrogen at fertility clinics. And to be honest, from an ethical point of view, there's very little we can do mm -hmm. with our frozen embryos except to keep them frozen for the foreseeable future. There's no other obvious moral option. The problem is, and of course, you know, this is a multi, the infertility industry that uh, uses this mass production of embryos, which is, by the way, there's, there's virtually no legal oversight of this hmm. in our country. There is in other countries, but not in ours. It's, it's really a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar business. Some suggest embryo adoption, that couples could implant and gestate and raise them as if they're their own children. There's an ongoing debate among Catholic theologians about this matter. And I'd say that technically it's an open question, but the Vatican seems to have pretty serious reservations about this approach. It hasn't said, condemned it as immoral, but has very serious reservations because if embryo adoption became standard practice, it would stimulate, it could stimulate the production of even more embryos. You mm -hmm. know, people who are supporting IVF could say, oh, we really don't need to worry. There'll always be somebody there who will adopt them, the ones that are left over. So it really doesn't uh, seem to be a good option. So what do you do? I mean, to be honest, sinful choices have consequences. And here we have something that there's really doesn't appear to be any moral resolution to this problem. Now, there are times I think that these frozen embryos that are stored for very extended periods of time, they'll die on their own. 
and sad from decay or freezer burn, whatever. There's those who say, oh, we should uh, donate them to science. Well, that's not a good thing. It's like handing, we're not handing over cadavers. We're handing over living human beings Mm -hmm. to be used as objects of research. I mean, parents have a duty to protect and care for their offspring, you know. So anyhow, it is a really difficult question, the disposition of frozen human embryos. And as I said, sinful choices have consequences. So what happens is the original decision to violate the moral law by doing IVF has grievous repercussions, including this kind of quandary of frozen embryos and what to do with them. And there's, there's really no apparent moral resolution to the problem. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We are answering questions that have been submitted by listeners. And the first question is, how should I respond if I'm visiting a parish and something inappropriate happens, like a laywoman giving a homily? Should I stay or leave? Should I say something to the priest afterwards? Well, I'd say whether it was a laywoman or a layman giving a homily, that's illicit. Whether one stays or leaves, I, I really can't say. I think it's up to the person. But I definitely think something should be said to the priest because it is not permitted. All right. The next question is, what is the name and purpose for the cloth Father uses when returning the Blessed Sacrament to the tabernacle after adoration? Well, it's actually the cloth that's used when a priest or deacon is giving the benediction. And that cloth is called the humeral veil. It comes from a Latin humerus, you know, the long bone, the humerus that is between the shoulder that runs from the shoulder to the elbow. That's called the humerus. Uh So this veil is called the humeral veil because it covers that upper arm. (laughs) And the reason the priest uses that for benediction is the priest is not, or deacon or bishop, is not blessing the people. Christ is. Christ is. It doesn't mean the priest can't touch the monstrance. Yeah, we do with our bare hands. But when we're blessing the people, we're holding the monstrance in the cloth, the humeral veil, it shows that it's not our blessing. It's Christ's blessing because it's the Eucharist. All right. Uh, The next question is a practical concern. With all the layers priests wear when celebrating Mass, it seems like they could get too warm in the summer. Are there different types or weights of fabric used to accommodate heat or cold? Yes, there are. I have certain chasubles that I do not wear in the summer Yeah, because I'll be sweating. Yeah. So I try to get a lighter material in the vestments that I choose in, in warm weather. And I guess um, since our churches are heated, I don't worry too much about wearing heavier vestments in the winter. But I guess it would be not a bad idea if the church is cold. Yeah. Well, it seems like nobody can complain about having to wear a pair of pants or something like that. My kids can't complain because the priest is always up there in so many layers. <laughs> That's yeah. right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. 
May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon for an all-new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Bishop will talk about the Lateran Basilica in Rome as its feast day is approaching. Then, since it'll be National Vocation Awareness Week, he'll talk about ways to foster and promote vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Afterwards, it's on to questions submitted by listeners, which will include topics like New Age spiritual meditations and why we don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. Go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop to submit your question for a future show. That's also where you can check out previous episodes of Truth and Charity. You can also download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and submit your question there. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.